Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to Dirty Water, back from a six-month hiatus, disappeared via a mixture of laziness and mortal fear of work. I'm Derek Riley, I'm a Charlie Smith, and today's guest is a surfer, war crimes investigator, and author of Tie Sticks, Surfers, Scammers, and the Untold Story of the Marijuana Trade, Law and War, a book about the Nuremberg Trials, Facing Death in Cambodia, and Breathe, the new bio and jiu-jitsu icon, Hicks and Gracie. Ain't much you can't do. Our guest made a fine cameo on Beach Grit one week ago, with a piece on the chaotic American withdrawal from Afghanistan. He describes Washington DC as a shit show. His own books as extremely depressing, developed a military rescue boat along with George Greeno, smoked approximately one ton of weed as a teenager, has multiple black belts in the martial arts and gave Kelly Slater his first ever lesson in jujitsu. And he's currently in the process of selling a screenplay on the discovery of G-Land. Our guest, Mr. P Peter McGuire. Peter. Derek, great to see you again. I think the last time I saw you was in about 1989 at the offices of the greatest surfing magazine ever, ever published, Australian Surfing Life, uh, with a great Mike Perry uh, at the helm of it. And those were good innings, right? Yeah, I think you must have tickled me in my cradle back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Smacked me on the ass. So, <laughs> so, uh, so Peter, first of all, how, how about we dive into Afghanistan? I mean, does yeah. Joe Biden strike you as the right president at the right time or a senile old son of a bitch who eats blended carrots and would rather be petting children? <laughs> well, um, I don't think there's ever a right president. And, and basically presidents get what they least want. And for example, George W. Bush wanted, you know, more or less dis disengagement and the America first thing. And then he got 9-11 and then he, you know, became the one who kicked his party off. Um, Sleepy Joe, uh, my wife best describes as one foot in the grave and one foot on a banana peel, um, <laughs> is, uh, is, is tippy at best. And, um, and it's sad because there are some great, uh, you know, American political leaders like Senator Jim Webb um, and, and many others. And they've, they've been sidelined since 9-11, uh, more or less. I mean, we're not all stupid. Did you have any hope when America went into Afghanistan that it would turn out any different than the Soviet occupation? Or, I mean, no, did you think by sheer might we could fix it? No, excellent question. Uh, the Soviets threw everything that they could at the Afghans. And one of my um, one of my closest associates I worked with in Cambodia, Sylvain Vogel, he worked in Afghanistan during those years and in, in the tribal areas and had great contacts. And when I was in Phnom Penh actually when 9-11 happened and when Vogel saw the road we were going down he said man this is this is going to end very badly i think the first real ill step is when we bombed a big wedding um in the tribal area very early on right after uh 9 and so you know the initial mission 
you know, was to capture bin Laden, to flush out Al Qaeda, all that. And we would have been largely successful at that. And interesting too, is one of the British elite commandos that I, I interviewed for my piece that you guys published, thank you. Um, you know, he said, look, we had bin Laden's cave, you know, we had him cornered. And, um, and so, you know, this, this thing's been a shit show since the get go. And so this Waterloo ending is actually very fitting and kind of provides an exclamation point uh, to the ending of the so-called GWAT, the global war on terror, which, um, you know, which was a farce um, with above all, you know, you get, you go back to Clausewitz, Karl von Clausewitz, the great, you know, German or Prussian military theor theoretician who says that you, you know, policy is the brain, military might is the fist. And if the brain and the fist don't talk, you punch yourself in the face. And that's pretty much what we did. So what were our policy objectives in the GWAT was um, freedom, you know, democracy in Afghanistan, in a country that Alexander the Great, the British Empire at the height of its power, the Soviets, you know, playing every dirty game possible. Um, I have some associates um, from Spotsnets who were, um, you know, were on the ground there and, and they, you know, there were no holds barred. So if the Soviets couldn't do it, how are we going to do it? You know, and then we have our ragtag army of NGOs behind us saying, oh, we've got to teach this and eh, women's liberation and this and that. And, you know, these are all good and fine things in a Western society. But um, when you start playing culture war games, um, you get in very perilous terrain. And I saw this in Cambodia during the UN occupation, the so-called UNTAC occupation after um, you know, basically it was about 92, 93, and the Khmer Rouge still compare, controlled a significant portion of the country, and the UN came in. They never, you know, militarily defeated the Khmer Rouge, but yet they set up all these social programs and all that. So they, they kind of tend to put the cart before the horse, and we certainly did that in Afghanistan. What was, what was the withdrawal so chaotic, surely, with the amount of troops that America has and the, and the might and, and all the toys? Why couldn't they secure? Well, you know, it, it, to, to pull out your military before you pull out your diplomats, um, you know, and your fifth column of people that have helped you that you know are marked for death if, if you bail on them. I mean, like I said, my analogy wasn't Saigon. It was Phnom Penh in the march of the Khmer Rouge into the capital, April 17th, 1975, um, you know, you had any, you know, you had any touch of the West, you were dead, that was it. You know, you were a so-called uh, new person and, and you were human cattle, livestock, you know, you were going to the killing fields. They're gonna, you know, in the Khmer Rouge, they killed, what was it, 2 million, in three years, 10 months, 20 days out of a population of about 10 million. Um, but most were just worked to death. You know, there were plenty of executions, but most were um, simply died of starvation, dysentery, 
malaria, things of this nature. And so, um, you know, it's just incredibly short-sighted, incredibly sloppy um, to announce departure dates, to do all this stuff. I mean, look, the British SAS, I would argue the greatest military force in the world, um, they landed a, a Hercules in, in a dirt field in Kandahar and ac- evacuated 20 SAS guys uh, at night. Um, so there's some, you know, there's some bad motherfuckers out there that are really, you know, getting it on. The French are getting it on and they're getting their nationals out. Like there's no excuse. We've got Devgru, we've got Delta, we've got, you know, incredible uh, warriors. Um, but again, we don't have, as we've never had in, in the war on terror, we've never had good leadership. We've never had good policy. Um, so that's, that's what I would say. <laughs> do, you have, do you have any, any hope for t- uh, Taliban 2.0, a kinder, gentler Taliban? <laughs> <laughs> um, not really. No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, they are what they are. Um, and the sad piece of the puzzle is that um, you know, we didn't bring peace and stability. And so uh, after 20 years, people yearn for that and, and, and they, you know, they vacillate. And we may see that, you know, in our own country where uh, my prediction is we're going to lurch hard to the right um, because of, um, you know, just this weird anarchic, you know, where's America going forward? That's not my goal. That's not my hope, whatever else. But um, we're ourselves in a very strange time. So it's a very natural reaction, though, to be pushed right <clears throat> when the majority population is pushed into a corner and, and marginalized. Don't you yeah. think? So in Poland, Hungary. <clears throat> well, when, you know, when, um, I mean, America has undergone a corporate cultural revolution, but for every revolution, there's often a counter-revolution and a counter-revolution is brewing as a result of incompetence. I mean, we're seeing basic incompetence on the Southern border. What is our policy on the Southern border? We don't really have one. I mean, really to be truly cynical and Chaz is truly cynical and you are too, Derek. So I'll throw this out there. Skeptical, I mean, not cynical. There's a difference. Yeah, but um, you know, the the probably the most efficient uh, multinationals in the world night, right now are the Mexican cartels, and so perhaps you know we could make a deal to fly the Afghan refugees into Mexico and and have the cartels handle their crossing into the U.S. because everybody else seems to be getting across. That's probably the most efficient way, and. Uh, and if you want to really read about the depths of, of how bad it is in, in the border areas, read uh, Ed Vulliami's book, Mexica. And uh, Ed is an amazing British reporter, British newsman of the year, uh, the best guy on the Bosnian war, um, was in Iraq and has spent huge amounts of time in Mexico and knows the cartels better than anyone. And, um, you know, how we in the, the post-NAFTA age of globalization and all that, you know, aided and abetted the cartels, it's just staggering. And that, you know, Wachovia, Wells Fargo, 
um, all these banks washed their dirty money. And, uh, and after the Wall Street collapse, 2008, 2009, they were one of the few uh, solvent, you know, solvent clients those banks had. So it was their solvency in, in many ways that propped up many of the American and also HSBC, the British bank. They all got busted for it, but they got a, you know, they got a, a slap on the wrist and a yellow card. So um, this speaks to something much larger and dirtier and more rotten. Funny how America's mistakes uh, are often the very most, I mean, Taliban, you know, essentially from the Mujahideen could yeah. be considered, I mean, uh, easily an American creation uh, along with uh, along with the cartels, along with like, how does not what we actually try to do work? What we are trying not to do is the thing that is like massively successful. It's wonderful. Good intentions often yield the worst results as, you know, Neville Chamberlain, you know, demonstrated with peace in our time and, uh, you know, with the Munich Agreement. So I'm wary of good intentions. I saw the, uh, you know, the, the postmodern Lady Barbara's, uh, you know, when I was in, in Cambodia, you know, and, uh, and, and man Barbara's. It's not just women. I mean, what do you, it, what do you mean by Lady Barbara's and man Barbara's? uh it's george uh bernard shaw you know it's it's kind of it's about you know these kind of well-intended people that um again put the cart before the horse you know you can't for example in cambodia you can't sort of um reestablish a society until you have uh, a, a lasting, you know, military peace. peace. Um, you have a true winner. I mean, that's like, you know, I wrote a book about Nuremberg. The only reason Nuremberg was able to happen was Germany had an unconditional military surrender. And that's unique. You don't normally get that. You normally get a messy peace, a negotiated surrender, some backroom deals and things of this nature. And so that, that really was an anomaly. And, and in Cambodia, because the Khmer Rouge were such a powerful military force, even after they were, were, were chased out of the capital and everything else, and, and backed by the United States, China, you know, and Thailand. So 1979, after we knew the Khmer Rouge committed genocide, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, the Chinese and the Thais backed them to offset Vietnamese military gains. So this is the dirty chess game of international politics, Chaz, you know this, this isn't news to you. And, um, and we play this kind of, oh, America, we're the political virgins of the world. Oh, shocking, oh my gosh, you know, let me clutch my pearls, no, you know, we, you know, it went it went it went sideways for us in 1898 with the Spanish-American War, right? So we beat the Spanish, and they and and then you know the Cubans say, "Oh, great, thank you, American liberators, Philippines." Oh, thank you, American. And we say, "Well, not so much." You know, we're gonna kind of send a few guys in there. We're gonna, yeah, you know, show you Philippines, gateway to Asia. Uh, so, you know, none of this is simple, and. Uh, 
it's a it you know international politics is this nasty game as bismarck said do i want a badly used napoleon or do do i want a well used napoleon and and those are the questions whether it's saddam hussein whether it's you know masood the lion of panchir you know i mean you're making Faustian deals every step of the way. And yeah. So. On, on branding, where do you put the Khmer Rouge? Like in terms right. of branding. on branding. Yep. I like I have in my branding catalog, Khmer Rouge right below Shining Path, way at the tip top of great branding, great marketing. Number one, numero uno. Yeah, yeah, funky boy. Yeah, older brother number one. Yeah, Pol Pot. Yeah, number one. Yeah, no, they, they, um, the best, some of the most amazing footage I recovered was from the East Germans who were the first camera crews into Cambodia. They went in with the Vietnamese. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was all Chinese orchestrated. And, you know, the Chinese were the sponsors of the whole thing. And, uh, you know, you know, the Chinese are our, our big adversary at this moment. And I guess, you know, I'm only allowed to say that on Beach Grid, but I've had a lot of run-ins with the Chinese. And um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't especially like them. And I'm happy to go on record and say that. And uh, from the way they behave in buffets in Cambodia to the way they behave in airport lines, had some fisticuffs, some, some very... Uh, yeah, some great fisticuffs with some Chinese nationals in. Oh, in, Peter, uh, you tell us about the fisticuffs because you're a kickboxer, a jiu-jitsu man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the best one was in uh, was in the airport in Bangkok, and uh, the Chinese tour leader with the flag tried to cut the whole line, and uh, and I just said not today, and and stopped <laughs> it, and then. But what was even funnier was a giant kiwi like hippie backpacker guy like came to defend the Chinese like I was the white racist guy so I almost had to fight him yeah fucking, you know I love the Kiwis but you know come on and uh yeah and so uh <laughs> and my old security chief uh Martin Schlickel was with me and the Kiwi didn't know it and so he broke off and was ready to drop him with a big right hand and um and it was pretty funny at the end of the day. And so uh, I have low friends in high places in Thailand. So I knew that he could have been shuffled around from prison to prison for weeks before his embassy found him. So I was ready to eat a punch, but he was a big, big monstrous guy. And, um, but I got in, like he, he didn't, his body language told me he didn't know how to fight. And so you know, I, I kind of do the, I do the thing. I go, what, what, what? And then I, and then, then I close the distance. And so, um, yeah. You I have a very strike. What's that? You go into a clinch or do you strike? Yeah. Them? Yeah. No, no. You get too close for them to hit you. Yeah. And then you talk close to them. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you say scary things. To them what, well, tell me, tell me a scary thing. Do a scary voice. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't want to. Come on, you give us a scary voice. Go, you, you want to die, motherfucker? Do you want to die today? You really want to fucking die? You want to do this? No, it's usually how far do you want to take this? We'll yeah. go as far as you want to go, and it'll take weeks for your embassy to find you. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Right? I like that. Yeah. 
with your bodyguard with a cocked right ready to just lay him out so (laughs) but but anyway then but then the best part was his wife realized that it was all a misunderstanding that i wasn't you know that i wasn't mad at the child whatever but the wife then starts screaming at the husband you fucking god (laughs) so he's getting harangued by the wife so then he has to back down and deal with the wife. And then we're stuck in the customs line right next to each other for another 15 minutes. And uh, yeah, so it was awkward at best. But. <laughs> uh, did you have it? You um, probably didn't have a chance, but I emailed you um, Chaz's non-fight with his um, adversary, uh, Ashton Goddard. Yeah, I, I'm, I got to come down south and my next trip to California in, uh, in September. And with those wonderfully long arms i'm going to teach Chaz how to make sure nobody ever controls the inside on him again and then okay you but before we get there you have to you have to talk me off the ledge of boxing i keep telling derek i want to learn to box and derek says no yeah boxing is not bad um wing chun kung fu is quite good for controlling the inside and, and usually you just got to talk. You always have to, like, the biggest mistake you made is you let them get too close. You go, you do this, you go, hey, hey, easy, easy. I, I've never been in a fight before, but hey. And then, and then you take those fingers and you stick them in their throat when they get in that touching area. And oh. then, yeah, yeah, right throat there. Jam. No, and you go there and you <coughs> push down. <coughs> and then the... <coughs> And then they gag and cough and all that, and then they don't really want to fight anymore. That really <laughs> quickly, though, isn't it? When you start jabbing people's throats, you will. That's fighting. You know what I mean? Like I love jujitsu. I the jujitsu I learned from Hicks and Gracie isn't really a lot of the jujitsu I see today, but um, you know, it was about fighting. You know, like we fought, and uh, and it was a very different world back in 1992, you know, when the Gracie brothers, you know, came to California or when Hickson broke off and started his academy on Pico Boulevard, which was, um, you know, that was the OK Corral. So I'm, I'm here real quick, Derek, I'm still yeah. going to go down the boxing thing. Just <laughs> it's the like the combination well, of writing you know, and boxing is what i like boxing's great the problem is the gloves is that the gloves kind of turn your hands funny and they're big and the you know the punches the combinations those things are all great but the gloves and then the thing is they're dead from the waist down like they don't have lens you know and so you need yeah, we'll we'll handle it in the in the Santa Fe <laughs> parking lot when I'm out. Okay, there. perfect, perfect. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm a I'm a great teacher. I love teaching martial arts. I still. Teach oh, martial. this is fantastic. Yeah, this is better oh, than yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah. What about Santa? You're long, you're tall and long, and you're gonna you're gonna have a I'm gonna you know you're gonna have a strong side jab, straight jab, and oh. uh, yeah. This is yeah, what I've been looking no, for. No one will get to take you down because you're like 12 feet tall with 14 foot arms. So, oh, yeah. Peter McGuire, where have you been all my life? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, you know, we both have roots in Coos Bay, Oregon. So I got to help you. Do, what are, what are your roots in Coos Bay? McGuire lumber. My dad That's was a crazy. Choke, yeah. My dad was a choke setter. 
That is insane. Yeah. Yeah. How much yeah. how much time did you do in Coos Bay? No, uh Seaside, three winners, four winners. Okay. Seaside yeah. is is rough, but ain't no Coos Bay rough in terms of depression. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. No, you get the <laughs> Coos Bay, you get the cork boot measles. Oh man, so you know true. What that is? Yeah, that's no. when you get the the loggers wear um the loggers wear uh, these these boots with they, they're like golf shoe boots right and then they take them into town on Friday night to go get drunk and then they obviously get in fights and then you get stomped with the cork boots and when your face is covered with scabs from the cork boots that's the cork boot measles yeah so no it's Oregon's a whole nother world okay yep. <laughs> well, yeah but I had a, I had I had a good run and uh, had a, had some good innings in in uh, actually Gearhart. So okay, yeah, oh, I know Gearhart. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, yeah. so then you're perfect. You're the perfect man to train me up. Yeah. You're gonna oh, be yeah. Sensei Peter from now on. No, but what was scary was the giant. Like I called the Oregon uh, local guys overbred. Cause like here in North Carolina, they're, I call them, you know, obviously, you know, some inbred where, but in, in, in Oregon, they're like six, five and, you know, Nordic monsters. And uh, yeah, it was no joke. You had to wear a hotline wetsuit. You had to have a clear yep. board. You had to carry your wetsuit in a bucket to the yep. point. You had to ch- yeah. So it was, yeah, it was total clandestine off. Had to have so cool. Oregon plates. Yeah. Oh Yeah. And you're a sailor, right? Yeah. Okay, so I stayed with the family who did Windward Passage. Uh, okay. Windward Passage in Ticonderoga. And they yep. were probably some of the, they won the Transpac, everything. And so in exchange for their house in Gearhart, I wrote the fam, the, the grandmother's oral history of the family. Oh, that's a, yeah. that's a great one. <laughs> oh, it was a great, it was great. I had a ball. I love Oregon. In the fall. Yeah, yeah. In the fall, in the fall only. Get out of there. Only. Oh, yeah. It's cr- it's crazy what's happened to, uh, I mean, not to go off too far afield here, but Portland in the last couple of years has been wild to watch, like from it's being the paradise to it being honest to goodness hell, where it was oh, nothing when I lived there. It was just Portland. It was the city that nobody went to and whatever. But then, so then to go there and see it, oh, wait, now it's the place to be, to then see, oh, no, this is a proper, honest to goodness, like liberal hell. Well, no, gunfights yesterday or Saturday. Yeah. I mean, straight yeah. up gunfights. And, uh, you know, Proud Boys v. Black Block and, and you know, on and on it goes. But yeah. um, I think, you know, the Oregonians are, are tiring of it. And, um, yeah. you know, again, they're you know, there, there are revolutions, there are counter-revolutions. So we underwent a cultural, uh, a cultural revolution, 2020. And, but, you know, and there's always violence in the wake of revolution, but, you know, it's not a secure revolution, right? So um, I, I think, you know, things are incredibly fluid and, uh, things are not looking good for uh, the Biden administration and uh, Harris, uh, 
got one percent when she ran um, for president in the in the primaries, and uh, you know they face an uphill battle in in the next election, and so. Um, you know, America's very volatile right now. We're a very violent country. The bloodiest war in American history was the Civil War. And I live in the South. And, um, you know, it's, it's very different down here. They know, they know what defeat tastes like. They know what military occupation tastes like. So it's actually kind of much calmer here because they realize what the stakes are. And, uh, and I don't think that, um, yeah, I think basically many, many parties in the American political game have overplayed their hand and they're about to realize it in a, in a very brutal way. Um, I've been wrong before, maybe I'll be wrong again, but I, I don't see, uh, yeah, I don't see this administration. Um, yeah, they're taking on water quickly. So my, I worked for Senator Jim Webb and who I quoted in that piece today. And, and I would, was really hoping that, you know, that he would become president. And he ran in 2016 as a Democrat and got something like 1% of the vote. And they asked him in one of the debates, this is kind of a, you know, the end of his campaign, they, they said, uh, you know, um, Senator Clinton, what's the enemy you're proudest of? And she said, oh, the Republicans, when I proposed health care, and they said, Senator Webb, Navy Cross winner, Silver Star, two Bronze Stars, two Purple Hearts in Vietnam. Uh, what's the enemy you're most proud of? He said, well, I think it was that Vietnamese guy who threw a grenade at me and I still have the shrapnel in me, but he's not here to talk about it today. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. That was it for Webb. Dead, you know, dead game set match. And this guy is the most qualified candidate we've got. He's written 10 books. He went to, you know, Naval Academy, um, secretary of the Navy, senator from Virginia, on and on it goes. I mean, great guy. You'd love to have beers with him, You'd, you know, have a good laugh. Um, but you know, he was just untouchable after that. But I think as again, um, Thomas Kuhn in the structure of scientific revolutions talks about, and I suck at science. And this is the only thing I remember from that book. And I got through college by taking like the history of science and anything around, you know, meteorology, anything around science. But, um, but I remember this and Kuhn said the greatest resistance against a collapsing paradigm or model comes at the moment before it's collapsed. And I think um, we see a lot of that today with these like incredibly aggressive pushbacks against commonsensical things. And it's, it's almost desperation. And, uh, and so, yeah, America, you know, remains the wild fluid country that we are. And, and, and an immature country, um, so. Which segues perfectly into the state of professional surfing and the World yeah. Surf League Ultimate Surfer debut tonight. Oh yeah. Do you, do you follow at all the WSL and pro surfing in general or no? Oh, of course, well, no. The, the, the pro surfing is, is really boring. 
above all. Um, it's just really boring. And then once it got into the aerial thing with the like shoulder wide stance and the big, you know, butt pump to do the big flip McTwisty thing. And the Olympics had that. And I was talking to George Greeno about it. And, and, and you need George on your show because he's one of the greatest of the great. And he pulls no punches. And George was, you know, just said they get like no points for a tube ride. And then they get, you know, they fail on 10 McTwisty things and then they get the gold medal. Like, what the fuck is this? And um, so once it got aerial and this and, you know, the Brazilian storm and all that, um, it became very uninteresting to me. Um, the ultimate surfer, uh, we'll have to see. Kelly was, uh, you know, I was his first jiu-jitsu teacher and, uh, and I don't know, we'll see. Uh, you know, ABC, lots on the line, you know, it looks pretty punishing. <laughs> do you, I mean, do you think there's like, in terms of even, not even, I guess, joking here, but in terms of the overall like empires coming and going, right? And things like this. And not that the WSL is an empire or anything, but just surf culture, I think, uh, as surf culture has gone kind of through history, it does feel like we're at a, we're at some point right now. I don't know what it is. But yeah, like there, there feels like it's coming up to a real head of something. And I don't know if it's like crusty locals versus the corporate mouth. I don't know what it is, but it does feel like something. Well, again, I mean, this WSL thing is just as long as Mr. Hedge Funder wants to keep funding it. That's great. But um I think he's going to get bored of it soon. You know, at the end of the day, it's his ROI and, and I don't see much ROI on this. Like they're not making dough and, you know, it's, I have Intel that he doesn't care. I have hot Intel that he does not care that he doesn't care to make money on it. He's, he's just going to sit on it. Like doesn't care. It's his thing. Likes to do it. Good enough. Whatever. Maybe, but um, he cares well, uh, he, I, I recently uh, was in the water with, with the great man of the WSL. And uh, here we go. This is what I was waiting for. He was, he was most frustrated by the fact that uh, even with a, 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 what I call a surf pie, you know what a surf pie is? No. no. That's when you're a plutocrat and you hire, you know, former great surfers to be your surfing Sherpa. Oh, perfect. Surf yeah. I love it. Yeah. This so is the surf, yeah. 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 So he had the surf puzz blocking for him. And, uh, and I grew up with these guys. So like they ain't blocking me. And, um, and, you know, my 14 year old and 16 year old and my friend's 15 year old daughter are just lapping him, getting wave after wave, wave after wave. And, and he looked like his head was going to explode. He was so mad, even with a blocker. And, um, and, you know, and I was like, gosh, who's that guy? He seems very, very upset. And he's used to having things his way. And, um, and so, you know, there it is. And, and we see more of this with the plutocrat surfing, you know, the great, the great term you guys coined, the vowels, the vulnerable, <laughs> 
adult learners. And, um, and most are, you know, entitled and educated and, and upper middle class are better. And um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's very interesting uh, in the Chinese sense of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the vowels are effectively our China, just busting What's down the board. The vowels are effectively our China, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. And um, I get them here, even in North Carolina, you know, and they're kind of the, you know, the Patagucci set, you know, with the Patagucci gear and, uh, and um, they, and what's funny is they really look the part, you know, they're really good at, um, they got the right board and the right wetsuit and the right this and that. So you kind of think they can surf. You're like, wow, like, oh man, this guy just paddled out. He's sitting on, and then, and then you see in their feet are like four feet wide when they're paddling and stuff like that. And you're like, oh my gosh, like they spent all that time getting the whole outfit right, but they can't even fucking surf. And so, um, yeah, it's, it is what it is. Did you ever imagine when you were at G-Land uh, early seventies that this would be surfing today? I mean, can you put yourself back then and think, okay, this is what surfing oh, no. is? I, that's my co-author Ritter. He was he was one of the G Land pioneers. I, I thought I, you were no, I no, thought you no. were in Bali early too. No, no, no. I just ghost wrote his new piece, but I I'm younger. I'm 56. And so in 1984, I moved to Australia by myself and and have really never been the same. And uh, okay. yeah, yeah, the Australian so, really, yeah really yeah i mean it's the same point right yeah absolutely and the australians i mean aunt corrigan matt elks uh in the nude you know derek you know all this stuff i mean this is the bacchanalian time of australian surfing and so i got to go up and down the coast with aunt corrigan and those guys and you know, the, the spit the winkle era. And I mean, it, you know, it was, it was 50 shades of wrong and, um, but it was great. And, uh, and I, and again, I never looked at surfing the same again, because in California, if you could surf, you could get away with anything in Australia. If you could surf and you were a dick, it didn't matter how well you surfed, like you got punished. And so, um, and the Bondi guys, you know, were the best and, uh, you know, and Ant was the king. I mean, Ant Corrigan was the greatest surfer of his generation. And he chose basically to work at the pub instead of going on the pro tour. And, um, and yeah, it was just, uh, it was a great, great time. And, uh, and so this stuff today, I don't, that, you know, it means less than zero. You know, I go surf. I surf today for two hours at a great surf. I still surf all the time. I go to California every trip I surf. Um, and I love surfing, but this stuff just absolutely means nothing to me. And, um, and it's silly. And, uh, you know, the idea that the aerial guys in beach break are, you know, we're going to create this game for them. It's, uh, it's meaningless. Um, I mean, I would say John, John Florence, Jamie O'Brien. Uh, these are the guys who are interesting to me um, and who, you know, just surf 
unbelievably well, or even guys like Eric Haas, who no one's ever heard of, but me and Jamie Brissick. I mean, um, you know, Eric Haas is a story unto himself and, uh, you know, probably the greatest, Eric Haas, uh, probably the greatest big wave surfer I've ever seen. And I lived on the North shore on and off for close to a decade. And, um, and that's a whole episode. Yeah. And ask Jamie about him. I mean, he, uh, yeah, just unbelievable. He'd call me up and say, hey, you know, he lived in Honolulu. I'm taking the bus out to the North Shore. Uh, can I borrow a board? Yeah, sure. And I'd meet him at Waimea and, you know, he'd, he'd get off the bus at like 630 in the morning and it's like, you know, uh, still Saturday night fever clothes from the Honolulu bars and um and put on his elastic waistband abc store trunks you know with his gut and everything and go out at 20 foot my waimea and get 20 waves in an hour and hand me back my board hop back on the bus and go back to honolulu yeah you know eric haas is is in his own league and uh he's in dana brown's heavy water there's a the whole movie is kind of built around this search for Eric Haas. And so, um, yeah, and he's, you know, he's in and out of uh, uh, the uh, C correctional facility and whatnot. Um, so, you know, he's got his, uh, what do we say today uh, in our kinder, gentler America, um, his challenges and struggles. <laughs> but uh, we might even have a conversation about it. <laughs> and have some concerns <laughs> so, so you talked about the vows i think it's a good time to um swing on back to your new book breathe hicks and gracie because yeah. there's go. an amazing passage in there where the hawaiians go to rio for a surf contest one of the hawaiians i think it was uh brian amona was it yeah yeah he, um, he hassles one of the local kids i think snaps his board or punches his fins out or something yeah punches fins out and then the gracie brothers go and look for him and yeah. And from that moment on, I think um, the Gracies never had a problem in Hawaii ever again, did they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But they 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 don't mind fighting. So and the Hawaiians like fighting. And so they did really they, you know, in Hawaii, you fight, they, you know, you get challenged, you fight back, all that. And then they hug you and love you and everything's good. And so um, the Gracies have fit in very well for that reason, you know, and uh, Helson Gracie was the first one there, Hickson's older brother, you know, and he plays soccer with all the Hawaiians and getting fights with them and stuff. And they loved him. And so, you know, it's, it's in many ways, having seen real organized, almost genocidal violence, it's ritual violence, right? It's to see who you are, to see what you'll stand up for, what you won't stand up for. And once they see that and understand that, then they respect you and life goes on and, and everything's okay. Um, but, and so that I think was the case with the Gracies was that um, they saw, wow. And then they liked him and they were like, wait, we wanna learn this stuff, like, hey. And then, you know, you've got an amazing MMA culture and jujitsu culture coming out of Hawaii and great fighters. And, uh, and so they adopted them basically. So can you, and, uh, for people who haven't read Breath Hit Breathe yet, yeah. can you paint that picture when, um, when Hickson and the Gracies go after uh, Brian and Brian's sitting in the backyard having a joint with Michael Ho? 
and the, well, they, um, yeah, basically, um, you know, this guy, uh, Hawaiian guy punches the fins out of one of Hickson's friends boards. Um, Hickson finds out, they find out that the Hawaiians are all staying at Rico de Souza, uh, Brazil's first pro surfers kind of home and factory and, and they invade it. And, you know, and, and everybody knew that the, Braz that the Gracies drove Volkswagens. So when five Volkswagens pull up, all the Brazilian surfboard factory workers start running for their lives. And the last guy jumps out of a bathroom window and it's like, you know, it's like the, the zombies have come and, uh, you know, and Hickson goes in and, and is looking for a moment and he's young, he's 16 or 17 years old and he's not big. He's 150 pounds and Amona's a big guy. And, um, and then he finds his board and, and smashes it or whatever else. And, and then the big wine comes outside and, uh, and then Hickson chokes him out and then chokes him out a second time. And yeah, and some of our big names of pro surfing were there. I think Mike Purpose, Buzzy Kerbox, Michael Ho, Randy Rarick. Um, I think they were all there. And uh, yeah, and then, and then Amona says he's gonna kill Hickson and kind of, um, you know, gets agitated at him at the, you know, the banquet for the contest. And uh, an old man, Gracie, Scary Helio, uh, you know, the father who fought a three hour, 48 minute fight of his own, says, no, this is absolutely unacceptable. And they go down to his hotel and Hori and Gracie says, you know, finds him and says, hey, you know, you want to you want to fight my brother again? That's not a problem. He's on the beach waiting for you. But this stuff of you know, you're going to get him. Well, you won't leave Brazil. And so, um, and, you know, I'll, I'll be curious as to what the other accounts are, but Hickson is a straight shooter. Um, Hickson doesn't lie or exaggerate. So I trust his, his account of this. I've heard others in the surfing world saying, well, you know, he was afraid to fight back because of the Gracie family and this and that. But I, I have, I have a hard time believing that. And Hickson surfs. He's a, good, he's a good surfer, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's now he's got some uh, some pretty serious back problems from obviously the years of fighting, so he hasn't been able to surf for a few years. But yeah, he was a very dedicated surfer his whole life, and loved surfing and loved it uh, in a way to test himself because he basically said after a certain point. I was really only fighting against myself. I wasn't, I didn't have much competition. I mean, he used to line up our whole class, 30 guys, 20 of them were pro fighters and go through every one of us like a hot butter knife, like every guy, 30 guys. And uh, some guys would last two or three minutes. And then other times he'd come in and say, okay, today I'm only gonna go for a right, an arm lock on your right arm. And, uh, and, you know, and he says in the book, like, if I got 29 guys and one guy lasted like three minutes and four seconds, I couldn't sleep. Like, I, I couldn't, you know, I stay up all night trying to figure out how that one guy survives. So he's a very unique guy and he's got a big brain. He's not dumb at all. And he, isn't, he doesn't really like fighting. 
And, and that's why we always kind of got along. Cause I'd say, Hey, can, you know, that sounds great and everything. But if I take some guy to the ground in Phnom Penh, I'm going to have like 30 people throwing concrete blocks on my head and another dozen like hitting me in the head with rebar. So that I got to take that pay. And, and he, and he said, he was like, no, you take that page out of the playbook and throw it away. And so he, kind of understood what I, the kind of stuff I was dealing with and, and, uh, and was intrigued by, you know, and fighting on motorcycles and driving cars through roadblocks and things like that. And he, um, he, he kind of was like, okay, well, that's different. Let's think about that. And, and he was very open-minded and in this, you know, martial arts tends to be very doctrinaire and many other, uh, jiu-jitsu guys are kind of like, oh, well, this is this, and that's the way it is. But Hickson had a very open mind, and and that's why um, we always got along very well, and uh, we're really good friends, and and still are. Hey, hey, do you Chaz, ever? Do you ever? Oh. What's that? I'm just saying, Chaz. Chaz, have you seen Hickson? Yes, I, I mean I've seen videos. He's a fucking sexy motherfucker. Check out the Bruce Weber shots from Rio. Oh, yeah. The absolute sexiest. And the way he, like, I mean, I have two questions on this one. The first, I'm going to ask them both at the same time, Peter. First is, was it, was Hickson's ability to dominate? Did he have just like an analytical mind where he could sort of see the movements of the body uh, and know what they were going to do? And then, you kind of own your body in that way, right? Because it's not in jujitsu, it's not force ever. It's like angle and whatever. I mean, I'm it is, but once, there's but there, you know, that's true, but there's you know, there's strength and pressure. And Hickson's biggest thing is pressure and and not going in with a game plan and basically like his what he always says is like, I just make I just take the guy and 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 I make him squeak and then when he squeaks i take what he gives me so it's not you know he doesn't have a game plan it's not like this guy leads with his right side and throws a jab a lot i'm gonna no it was never he's that seeing something in real time right like he's seeing what like i mean a vision like a heat seeking yeah. snake yeah. or whatever where he's seeing yeah no exactly correct and that was what was most interesting about hickson was that when i first met him he would look you in the eye with those terrifying, like dead black eyes, and he would shake your hand and then he would feel you up. He'd like feel yeah. your lats and everything. And he and it was like you could see the supercomputer going yeah. like threat, not nah, nah, friend, yeah. foe. <laughs> and and uh, and it was really interesting. And I and I kind of came away, I was like, wow, that guy is the greatest evaluator of humans and who they are and like he can get right to the core of someone faster than anyone i've ever seen and i can do that quickly because i've had to as well in work but he did it in a way that was like nothing i've ever seen and then he so would say oh these guys well, yes these guys very good kickboxer but he's coward and i was like <laughs> and and and, you know, world champion fighters, but he would immediately like smell something weird about their motives, about their this, about the way. Yeah. And so he, 
yeah, he had a real intuitive sense that um, that was born from having to evaluate someone within seconds and potentially have to fight them, you know? So then on to the second question. Yeah. uh, Could you develop a BJJ of four war correspondents of like when you are getting the rebar whacked on your head? Like, because I feel for all my lack of fighting, my very clear, obvious lack of fighting. I mean, with Hezbollah, with Al-Qaeda, with anybody, I can figure out a room and can play a room. Right. Like, and not a, from Somalia to deep Yemen to wherever, right? I can play a room. Uh, I can't fight anybody, but there's something about playing a room and fighting, I feel that's sort of similar, where I feel you could be a master of a new technique of playing the room and fighting a whole well, number new one is, yeah number one is the weapon of the mouth yep. the most powerful weapon we have right yep. and my favorite one is to go like what what <laughs> what uh, and you got to leave the mouth hanging open and look slightly confused and then and you watch people's body language and it drops like oh this guy is a little bit oh he's a special needs fellow and then and that's your window of opportunity um there's that and then there's also and then a lot of it especially like in um in rioty chaos things it comes down to like football yeah and football and boxing and running over people and being able to run in street clothes like eight minute mile like i always made sure i could run an eight minute mile in full street clothes like with a bag and and um I had a situation in Cambodia. Um, they have the, what's called the River Festival every year during the big uh, rain season, where all the dragon boats come from all over Southeast Asia to race in the Mekong. And then, of course, it's the wet season, so every afternoon there's a torrential rainstorm, and there's like two million people, and there's a stampede. And like one year, something unbelievable, like a hundred people got crushed to death um and this is a regular event and so i went to the ap office to do some work not remembering that it was the river festival i was staying not even three four or five blocks away uh and i came out and it and and it was torrential rain and the crowds were pushing and shoving and um and then you know they start stampeding and you're crushed to where you can barely breathe And then I see these like hooligan young Cambodians with their hands on each other's shoulders running through the crowd, like 20 of them, like a centipede. And I went, that's my exit. And I got put my hands on the last guy's arms and just got in that human train and I got out. And so those are the kind of tactical decisions you have to make when you don't really have time to think and you don't... um, yeah, you, you have to, you know, you have to, you have to move fast and think fast and like a quick mind. I've seen great, great fighters that were a little bit slow. They weren't dumb, but their minds weren't fast. And, and you would watch a whole situation develop and they wouldn't pick up on any of it. So the fast mind that can see a bad situation developing is probably better than a panoply of martial arts skills because 
you can avoid a lot of trouble before it lights up. Um, but yeah, running, boxing, rugby, football. Yeah. These are your, these are your friends and mob violence. Yeah. <laughs> so learn Sambo Chaz. Sambo is pretty amazing. Combat Sambo. Yeah. But Ooh. it's on the ground. I like again. Sambo. Yeah. Sambo yeah. good. good name. Yeah. Derek, Derek wants to always get me on the ground. I want to stand on my feet and just punch. Yeah. Oh, and you got the range. I mean, you got the range. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got to, but you got to go strong side forward, you know, so yeah. you, you lead with your strong hand with like a vicious straight jab, never flaring the elbow. And, uh, and then that's going to be really hard for people to get past. So. So then Derek. Love someone's just going to come in, clinch, boom. It's on the ground. No. Uh, yeah. Second chairs. Well, yeah. what we got to do, I got to train boxing, Derek, but we could do, we could sell this pay-per-view. If I train boxing for a while, you're with your jujitsu and we go old school. Uh, what were the first uh, UFC? What were those yeah. where they just would put like boxer oh, yeah. versus whatever? Oh yeah. yeah that was that's cool. what we do, Derek. Vale Chudo, Chaz. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, that, was, that, that was much more interesting back then. Yeah. I loved it back then. I don't, I don't care about UFC. They're all doing the same thing. Like it's a yeah. thing and I get it and it's, I appreciate it and that's great. But yeah, I wanted to see the karate guy fight the boxer guy where it was yeah. like playing toy action figures and you always wanted to know. And clearly the stinking Gracie's owned everybody and then it broke the whole thing. Like, so to Derek's credit, I guess, once it gets on the ground, you're over, right? Like boxer on the ground. Yeah, but then, but then the American wrestlers came in. And, and I train a lot of wrestlers and have over the years and they're monsters and, uh, and they have the best work ethic and, um, and, you know, they became incredible guys like Kevin Randleman and Mark Kerr. And, uh, I would argue some of that generation of fighters are better than anybody today, like, Which, um, boss root. You know, I'm, it'd be so fun. And if UFC was ultimate fighting again, was that if they made people stay to a tradition of fighting, you weren't allowed to mix. You yeah. were a kickboxer. You were a boxer. You are a jujitsu. You are whatever. And then go have at it. Cause then, yeah. I mean, the mixed martial art, I suppose is just frankly, not interesting. I love boxing. I will watch yeah. boxing all day, every day because I don't know. I grew up with it, right? But yeah, yeah. after you, it's like watching uh, children play in a uh, sand pit or something. It seems so, um, so consequence free after watching. Yeah. Fight. What does boxing? What boxing? Yeah. Oh, boxing, no, boxing, but boxing's boxing the sweet more, science. No, no, boxing actually is more brutal than any of them. And I boxed, and it was horrible. And I got hurt worse boxing than anything. Because your hands are wrapped, you've got gloves on, you're not going to break your hands. And um, you can hit, you know, you can hit and get hit way more than the human body would allow if you were, you know, fighting barefisted. And so that's what made Volley Tudo interesting was that it was no gloves. So that if you're throwing hands, you're going to break your hands. And we saw that in the early UFCs. All those guys broke their hands. If you hit anybody above the nose, brow, you know, that area, you know, you're going to eventually break your hands. And so, um, no, boxing's brutal. 
and I don't think people realize how brutal it is. And then Thai boxing is just in its own league. And those fighters are the toughest pound for pound fighters I've ever, ever dealt with. But again, they're dead from the waist down and all their skills on their feet fail them on the ground. And so, um, but yeah, the, the Russian, American, Iranian, I mean, you know, some of these wrestlers are just unbelievable, like Khabib. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this guy's unbelievable. And um, I mean, K- Khabib is the best ever, though, right? Like, un- basically uh, unbeatable. You know, for, for right now, yeah, he's the best guy right now. Period. And um, where he fits in in the in the big ziggurat of things, I don't know. You know, it's hard to compare. But um, yeah, incredible work ethic, incredible toughness. Um, Have you ever done your Chechnya, Dagestan, anywhere in there? Your Caucasus? Oh, thank you. No. Yeah, scary. <laughs> Gary. I mean, the guys that I have worked with over the years, um, you know, basically said, like, I had a friend who was one of the horse soldiers in the first invasion of Iraq. And he said the scariest guys they ever came up across were like blonde haired Chechens. And they were Muslim. And they said those were the guys that they were, you know, that they were most afraid of. And so, um, yeah, no, the Chechens are gnarly. And, Chechen, and Chechnya is my holy grail of going. Like, I've been close, uh, but I haven't been in yet. And I want to do a hard yards in Grozny. I am excited. Yeah, Grozny. Oh, man. Go see uh, Khabib, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I've, uh, yeah. He and I will we'll have a good time together. I can talk I some Muslim a, with him. I got him. I have a, I have a Montagnard fighter. Do you know about the Montagnards? No, no. Montagnards are the greatest, uh, were the greatest American allies in the Vietnam War. And these are the Southeast Asian Hill tribes. There's 30 different tribes. These are the guys who are guarding Kurtz in the end of Apocalypse Now. Right. That oh, yeah. whole scene. Okay. Right. So uh, one faction of them called the Lost Army continued fighting the Vietnamese until 1992. Jesus. Never surrendered. Yeah. And so an incredible reporter who, um, you know, like many, we don't hear much about anymore, a guy named Nate Thayer, the only guy to interview Pol Pot, uh, kind of one of my idols. Uh, Nate uh, was on the border of Cambodia and Vietnam. And all of a sudden, I don't know if Nate was there, but all of a sudden these guys in old tattered uniforms with old M1 Garands and stuff come out of the jungle to this UN uh, cantonment point and they're like, oh, you're the Americans. You brought our, our new weapons and, and our, our resupply. We've been waiting since 1975. We just <laughs> launched an offensive against the Vietnamese last week. And uh, and and I think it was Nate, but he said, well, not really. I'm a reporter, blah, 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 blah. And, and he turned around and poof, they're gone. They vanished. So then he went and told one of the UN guys, I think it was from one of the Spanish units, and said, fuck, these Montagnards, the Lost Army, they're still alive, man. We thought that they got wiped out in 75. So they, they dressed Nate as a Spanish soldier and, and said, oh, he's got malaria. We got to take him to Phnom Penh. 
and they flew a UN helicopter over the border area and they saw a clearing of trees and they started to go down and all these people came out of the forest and, and they were the lost army. And they'd been listening to Voice of America Christian broadcasts. So they were like hardcore evangelical Christians and, um, and then began the secret evacuation of the Montagnards uh, from Vietnam to Cambodia to North Carolina. And the old Green Berets said, fuck, those guys saved more of our lives than anybody. You get them here, we'll take care of them. And it was one of the few great moments of, you know, we completely abandoned and, and fucked them. But we did kind of try to make up for it in the 90s, a day late and a dollar short. But nonetheless, today, North Carolina has the largest Montagnard population outside of Southeast Asia. And so oh. one, one of these refugees that I probably... And I was going into their camps at the, uh, uh, around those times and, and uh, you know, kind of, you know, seeing what was going on and, and uh, trying to help the evacuation. But uh, one of these guys I probably saw in a UN refugee camp in Mondalkiri, Cambodia, um, eventually got to the United States. And now he's an MMA fighter that I coach and he's six and oh, and he's fighting in the UFC contender series, Theo Relang. Oh yeah. And, uh, and these are amazing people. I mean, these are just amazing people. And, you know, one generation, his dad comes, you know, they come to, you know, uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, speaking no English, you know, with the clothes on their back and in, you know, in one generation, they're all college graduates now. His dad has the most successful tree trimming business in, in his town and uh, just remarkable people. And so, yeah, so Theo fights, I think the 21st in Las Vegas. Oh, what's his, yeah. what's the, what's the full name? Uh, Theo Relang and, and he's, and even better. He's fighting a Vietnamese guy who chased him out of his homeland. No, oh, yeah. And, uh, not literally, but figuratively. I mean, you know, let's build up storylines. Come on, we're yeah, writers exactly. here at the end of the day. Yeah, so <laughs> Theo's fighting a Vietnamese American, a fellow refugee. I mean, I, I, I think the world of the Vietnamese refugees that came to America, you know, the boat people, 75, I mean, just, you know, amazing model immigrants, you know, and now that we have the, the kind of open Southern border, um, you know, I think we should pick and choose who, who gets to come in. And, and when I look at the Vietnamese, when I look at the Montagnards, um, they've been amazing, uh, amazing American citizens. Like Fofo Tatele, the Samoan Marine that I'm trying to get the Congressional Medal of Honor for, who, you know, was the hero of the Mayaguez incident, last battle of the Vietnam War, who did, I don't remember how many tours in Vietnam. He wasn't even a U.S. citizen. The guy, you know, the guy was was a, a Western Samoan. And uh, so there should be some kind of price for admission. <laughs> wow. What, why, the, um, why are some immigrants more successful than other immigrants? What's the difference? 
Um, that's hard to say. I think, um, you know, I, I think our Hispanic immigrants have been incredibly successful and, uh, being a Californian, uh, you know, Mexican culture is probably like when I moved to the South, I wasn't sure I could live here until I found a good Mexican restaurant, a good Mexican market. And, uh, and then I immediately felt like, oh, okay, I can, I can live here. Um, so um, I think, you know, we have some incredible success stories, um, but, but, you know, there, there, I think um, Europe's facing some of these questions now, you know, where Germany in particular, you know, where the, they were, you know, we'll open our arms, we'll take all of you and you get, you get a deluge of single male military age men. Um, I don't think that's going to work out well anywhere. Um, but, um, but America now, the southern border is a complete and utter mess. And, and, and it's, I don't want to blame it on Biden. I don't want to blame it on anyone. It's, it's um, America's had it both ways, right? So we had the Bracero program to bring over uh, you know, Mexican labor during harvest season, you know, then we had the NAFTA agreement, which basically, you know, made our border open. I mean, most of our fentanyl comes across legitimately through trucking across, you know, the, the main borders of, of America and Mexico, because it's impossible to, to check. I mean, there's just too many vehicles coming through. And, you know, and again, the cartels are some of the most efficient multinational corporations on earth. Like for example, when NAFTA came down, I think in 92, 93, um, the cartels, re you know, realized, okay, um, like chicken processing, chicken processing was once a good union job. And then globalization, let's get rid of unions, let's get rid of regulation, blah, blah, blah. So the cartels kind of realized, okay, the only Americans left in these chicken processing plants are tweakers. So let's send Mexicans to work in the, um, in the chicken processing plants and they can also sell meth. And so, I mean, it's, 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 it's grisly, but it's brilliant if you wanna, you know, let's, let's just- Sell the product. Yeah. Yeah, and so they beat us at our own game, you know. And uh, you know, again, I was a union member, and and it was great. I mean, I made more money um, working as a union labor. Um, I was uh, AFL-CIO Local Three Hundred, uh, Labor's Local Three Hundred. I worked eleven at night to six in the morning with Daryl Strawberry's cousins on high rises in downtown LA. Daryl Strawberry's so cousins. Yeah. And so, oh, we, awesome. yeah. And so I made more money working as a union laborer and selling weed than I made as an Ivy league professor, not adjusting for wages, anything. So I did that when I was about 17, 18 in 1982 and three, and then, you know, 94, five, I'm an Ivy league professor and I'm making less money. <laughs> Yeah. Do you ever regret the flip to the Ivy League to being Dr. Peter Maguire as opposed to 
No, no, I'm really, I'm amazed that I got that PhD. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, yeah. That was, was your, that was, was your dissertation, uh, war and law or law? Yeah. Law? Yeah. More or less. Yeah. Nuremberg okay. trials, but it yeah. was very subversive and it took a decade to get published. I mean, it was, uh, it was, I basically called bullshit on international criminal law and, uh, and that was in the 90s when it was going to be the world court and, and all that. And I said, listen, without enforcement, without the Security Council powers being held accountable the same way as everybody else, this is no different than Woodrow Wilson, you know, and, and the Treaty of Versailles. And this was a very unwelcome message. And, uh, and um, yeah, so my... My career started off a bit bumpy, and and that's when I went to Cambodia. I was like, well, you know, I'm going to go do real field work. And uh, my PhD advisor was Brigadier General Telford Taylor, who was the chief prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials, and so he was a stern taskmaster. And uh, and yeah, and and it yeah, it took me ten years to get my first book published, and uh, you know, rejected. You know, I would get split reviews at every publisher. And then, um, you know, and then eventually great German historian, Jörg Friedrich, uh, was one of my reviewers. And he said, no, McGuire's right. Not only is he right, I'm going to hire him. And he hired me to work for Spiegel TV in Germany on a documentary on the Nuremberg trials. And then he introduced me to all the old German defense attorneys who said, of course, we freed all the war, the prisoners of war, not war criminals. And this is how we did it. And we wrote it in invisible ink. And so, um, and so, yeah, so that was really, uh, that was interesting. And that was about the time I met Kelly uh, in France. Yeah. Cause I would work in Germany That's and then get paid in Deutschmark. And then I would go to France to go surfing like any spare minute I had. And then I met Kelly at the at the house of the Quicksilver owners in in Europe. Okay, so you got to spool this story out real quick. You, uh, okay. First, I mean, first meeting, first impressions, and what Kelly has become, and also, I guess, as a Hitler-esque figure, what he's come to represent. Oh lordy! Um, well, he, uh, I, I first actually met Shane Dorian. Uh, he was staying there and he was a really nice guy. And, uh, and I spoke a little bit of French and, and so, um, and I, you know, I know France, so I would drive him and take him surfing and whatnot. And we became friends. And then I said, gosh, Kelly, I've been sitting, I mean, in Shane, I've been sitting in a courtroom, you know, can I just practice some martial arts with you? So I taught him some real easy, wing chun drills nothing hard nothing mean nothing that he would get hurt or anything and he was a wonderful guy and a great training partner and and a pearl as you Aussies say and uh yeah Shane Dorian is a truly nice guy and uh and then I went back to the Hague and this was the first Bosnian war crimes trial do so Tadich and uh a, a really nasty prison guard and uh i remember doing so yeah you know and so so i and so i came back from they called a recess and the minute there was a recess i'd go straight to the airport get the first plane to france so i get to 
back to the house in France and I'm in a coat and tie with a briefcase and I'm not a big guy. And, uh, and, and I, I see Shane, Hey Shane, gosh, I've been in the courtroom the last two weeks. You want to train a little bit? And, and he says, no, but, uh, Kelly does. I said, well, that's odd. Kelly, I don't know Kelly. And, and then, you know, then the great man walks in and, uh, you know, and he's kind of looking at me like a lamb chop and I'm kind of going like, this smells funny. And uh, anyway, um, he had all these rings on. I said, please take your rings off. And so we go out on the lawn and, um, and I kind of try to teach him the same way I was teaching Shane, but, um, you know, but he's a very competitive um, and aggressive fellow. And, uh, you know, and he's kind of throwing some heat at me and I'm, you know, ducking and bobbing and weaving and it's fine. I deal with that. And, uh, and it goes on for a long time and, and his, his peers. So you need, you know, you need a follow up with the people who are actually there and witnessed it. But anyway, they're all kind of lurking in doorways and whatnot. And the, his videographer at that time was, who was that guy? Taylor Steele. Yeah, he was lurking as well. And I just, I felt a setup. And, uh, and then he says, oh, you know, can we fight on the ground? And he doesn't know that I'm like a Hickson student. Say, sure, go ahead, put me in anything you want. And he puts me in a kind of bad rear naked choke. And, uh, and, and I, I, drop my chin and do what I need to do. But then he starts like doing this stuff and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, this is a kind of a different party now. And then, um, and then I, uh, I just stretched him out a bit and, uh, and then helped him up and said, wow, you know, you're, you're a really competitive guy and you could be a great fighter one day. And nice to meet you. I'm going surfing. And, and, and I mean that because he, he really does have an incredible competitive spirit that fighters need. And he has a weird length, like he's got these long, long arms. So I think more than jujitsu, he, he would be an incredible boxer. Um, and, um, and that was more, I didn't, you know, that was more or less it. And then he had a contest the next day and I, I, he did real, didn't do well. And I think it was cause I, you know, he got a bit stretched out. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I, I leave, I don't like to, you know, guys like that, that are used to winning, you know, uh, you got to leave them with a little bit of their dignity. And, and that's why I'm a good teacher. Like I don't, I have some incredible athletes and incredibly competitive people. And, um, I don't, I, I, I can beat them without defeating them. And that's, that's why, you know, they come back. So it's very analogous to successful war, isn't it? That you don't yeah. completely humiliate your um, adversary. Exactly. Exactly. No, you leave them some dignity and, you know, I mean, or, you know, you can go unconditional surrender mode, but, um, you know, it depends on the adversary, really, and it depends on the war. Um, but, yeah, typically wars don't end with an unconditional surrender. And so then negotiating that piece you know that dignity that 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 face leaving them with that makes it much more easy to negotiate a truce a peace treaty whatever else i mean if you completely crush them 
yeah, you might win that phase, but then you've got three generations planning their revenge behind them, like the Afghans. I mean, you know, they're all about revenge. I mean, this is, you know, the, what is it? The pastoral wheelie code is all about multi-generational revenge and, uh, and hospitality at the same time. I mean, the guys that I know who were either smuggling weed and or hash out of Afghanistan and the ones who are fighting in Afghanistan love the Afghans, especially the Pashto. And I mean, and, the Pashto are the only ones to love though, right? Yeah. Let's be honest. I yeah. mean, yeah. the Pathan, all the other Afghanistans are just pretending to try to do something. But yeah. The Pathans are like serious about doing something. Yeah, but no, that like, um, yeah, my old associate, you know, uh, in Cambodia, you know, he, he, there was no group he spoke more highly of than, you know, Masood and, and his, his gang and, uh, and, and not just Masood, but, but just, you know, he loved the tribal area and, um, and they treated him incredibly well. And, uh, you know, and he was in that region for like seven or eight years. And, it's uh, a disaster that it didn't it didn't somebody couldn't flip it because I think they're totally wonder I mean fantastic the Afghans yeah Patans particularly but like there's something winning about them that if you just suck in and let or like sunk in there's something there right like it's not yeah yeah no colossal yeah it was so easy right it was yeah. so we fucked it up so bad. And yes. and I remember, you know, when 2001, um, basically going to high level US government people in the military and stuff that I know and saying, look, I have a guy who, you know, he speaks Pashto, Urdu, Dari, um, Sanskrit, Arabic, fought with, you know, the different tribal armies he's ready to roll, you know? And then they, they would, there'd be this kind of deafening silence and, and I'd hear nothing. And then they'd be like, well, you know, he's not an American citizen. And I'd be like, and, yeah. and then, you know, and then you'd have the, the, you know, dev guru guys say, Hey, just get him to fucking Kabul. We'll pay for him out of our own yeah. pocket. We don't even have people who can speak the fucking language. They're sending Billy Bob from fucking Jackson, you know, North Carolina, Jacksonville, North Carolina to Monterey to try to learn Pashto in, in eight weeks. And that's, uh, you know, a tonal language that sounds like, <laughs> like you know, I, and, I tried to, I tried to learn Pashto in college yeah, just yeah. on my own. It is, yeah. it is not an easy language to learn. No. And it, all the tonal languages are hard. And, yeah. uh, yeah, and, and so, you know, that was the part that was maddening, was that, you know, the, the convergence of the neocons and the evangelicals and the prayer breakfasts in Washington. And like, I can't go to that party. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a pagan, you know? So, um, yeah, it was, it was just sad to watch it, you know? And- uh, Damn it, and, I should, I'm an evangelical. I should have been in that party. Yeah, your man, yeah, on the ground. Well, yeah, you could have done it. Yeah, no, I no I, yeah, I can't. Go I there. could do it, Peter. <laughs> you and I, 
we got yards to do still <laughs> no well i mean you know no no like i'm i'm chaos and crisis are my comfort zones so i don't know there might still be hope you know <laughs> i mean me dang too unfortunately <laughs> yeah no it's it's um you know and and like we had some amazing guys and you know to bring us back to surfing the great ivan trent buzzy's son who is a hundred times gnarlier than buzzy like Ivan, you know, he was in the original Richard Marcinko's, you know, SEAL Team 6 dev group, like original selection. He was in every international incident, you know, from, uh, you know, the Iranian failed attempt uh, to, um, you know, when they got Abu Abbas in, in um where was it? It wasn't Sardinia, but, uh, but in any case, it was, forget, but, uh, but anyway, Ivan was everywhere. And then he retired at 48 and he was done with the SEALs. Then 9-11 happens. He re-enlists and, and basically like Admiral Eric Olson, the head of SOCOM has to intervene and go, no, no, we need this one on the field. And so Ivan does another like five years um and you know is ivan's the best and uh this is, have you ever thought about screenplaying this one no because that's i mean you have to admit on the podcast no but. not really um you know he's a private guy and that stuff i kind of have to keep sidebarred and one if they but this is the stuff that is this is the stuff that inspires future generations, yeah. right? Like it's these movies yeah. that you sit and watch as an eight-year-old yeah. where you think, I want to be that guy. Yeah, no, no. And he, uh, I mean, and he trained, you know, what was amazing about Ivan was that his bud students, basic underwater demolition school at Coronado, he was a legendary instructor that they called instructor blah. And, uh, and, you know, with the monotone, always monotone everything. And, uh, and you know, so all the 9-11 or many of the 9-11 hero seals were Ivan's bud students. And then Ivan goes downrange with them as like a senior citizen on the battlefield with them. So that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. No, he's, uh, he is a dangerous man. That was a Clint Eastwood movie right there. Yeah. I can't believe you got a Boo Bus. And for people that don't know Boo Bus, he was the mastermind of the Achille Lauro. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was Sicily was where I think uh, they, they the plane went down and Ivan was in a little bird, you know, with them in the cross, with him in the crosshairs. And then, then there was a standoff between Delta, Devgru, and the Italian Carbonari, they almost had a shooting war because the Italians wound up letting him go. And we were trying to catch him. And so, and any time you mention an international incident to Ivan, it'll be like, oh yeah, that time in Sicily, uh, you know, and you're like, huh? you know, you're like Zelly. And so, um, yeah, no, he, there's some, you know, there's some amazing, uh, yeah, amazing, you know, it, it's kind of like, Lieutenant Colonel and below, we should just promote them all to generals because they're the great 
you know, these are the great Americans, you know, who really did the heavy lifting in the war on terror. It was the leadership failure, much like the Vietnam War um, and the politicians that are always going to be politicians. Um, and in the piece that I sent you guys today is, you know, uh, you know, just very odd, the kind of neocons and the humanitarian hawks uh, who don't serve in the military, whose kids don't serve in the military, but yet ask, you know, the military to do this incredible heavy lifting. I mean, I counsel veterans and I counsel guys who did five combat tours, you know, who went into the Marines as virgins at 18. And, um, you know, five tours later, their whole youth is chewed up and, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, PTSD, you know, and then some, and, uh, you know, and then they get them on a zillion different pills and, and that doesn't help. Um, but we've, you know, we've made a real mess of this and, uh, and there needs to be some reckoning for it. And, and, you know, as I wrote today, I think that the architects, the enablers, the cheerleaders, we need to kind of remember who they are and hold them to account. Um, it's time for a reckoning. And a reckoning doesn't necessarily have to be legal. We'll never have a Nuremberg-like reckoning, but, but we might have some, you know, much more painful on the one hand, some kind of what I call therapeutic legalism, like, you know, touchy-feely truth and reconciliation commission or something. Um, but I think for us to move forward, we need to kind of take st stock of, of how much blood and treasure we have lost and prestige as, you said, Derek, I mean, to have, you know, the British and the French just completely outperforming us in Kabul right now um, is embarrassing because it isn't like we don't have the talent and the people with the capabilities to do exactly the same thing. We don't have the leadership. Um, so that's where we're kind of falling down. Fuck. But let's go back to surfing. <laughs> let's end it on surfing guys Come on. Surfing. um so i had a, I had a little surfing question for you um, go. let's uh, go australia let's go deep australia <laughs> deep australian surfing derek surfing but surfing 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 peter transplants yeah. all your war crimes investigation and all, and all that sort of shit in cambodia and and everything onto surfing um how has surfing changed in your lifetime and what behaviors do you see in the surf that uh, are human behaviors that you've witnessed in Nuremberg and, and Cambodia? <laughs> well, first I would say that, you know what the greatest cure for PTSD was? It was, going, it was going from Cambodia directly to Australia and staying with George Greeno and and going from being worried about being kidnapped and killed by the Khmer Rouge to being worried about being eaten by giant sharks at outside Flat Rock with George. Because we used to surf the sharkiest places in Australia that I wouldn't dare surf now. And um, Cape Byron and, you know, outside Flatty and all that. And so, yeah, uh, but, but your bigger question, um, Oh, I think now surfing is just a funny thing and that it's kind of become, you know, this sort of upper class, uh, at least, you know, in some of these regions of California, the, the vowels that you guys so wonderfully characterized. Um, 
you know, they think they're kind of owed something or that I'm supposed to give you a set wave because it's your turn. And even though you farm three waves in a row. Um, so that's the part, like, I like that harsh hierarchical world of surfing that I grew up in that was that, you know, you earned your stripes and, you know, they were, the older guys were really mean to you. But once you, you kind of got there, you know, you then got to be mean to the next generation. And, um, and academia was like that as well. And I'm writing a piece now called the anti-Socratic revolution in American education. And I talk about how, you know, we've, we've replaced excellence and rigor with um, the perception of safety and comfort. And, and this is just laughable stuff. And, it, and I, it's why I, I largely don't teach anymore because, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The Paper Chase with John Hausman about law, Harvard Law School, but you know, my, I, my professors were way scarier than him. And, um, and that was the way I taught for years. And, and you know, now I'm kind of like, a, I'll teach history of surfing. I teach it at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and I enjoy it, it's fun. But it's, I'm a stand-up comic, I'm an entertainer. I'm, I'm not like, I'm filling seats and, uh, and then we're held hostage to student evaluations and and this kind of nonsense. And because like the jazz hands up there, and that was good. What's that, jazz hands? Yeah. And yes. so because uh, it might upset some people. <laughs> but yeah, and and um, and so that's what's funny is that the students have power over their professors now in the in what I call the culture of complaint, and in the culture of complaint you know, the students are empowered, you know, to anonymously complain. And then those complaints are held over our heads. So due process is gone. I don't know who my accuser is. I don't even know what I'm accused of. Um, yet I'm accountable. Um, and, and the piece that I'm writing now is just horrifying because um, ultimately, uh, a professor who's anonymously accused and goes through these, you know, 10 months of star chamber courts uh, commits suicide with a nail gun and his family's now suing the university um, for a conspiracy and many other things. And that's going to go before the 10th circuit court of appeals. And I'll have a uh, piece on that in, in probably the next week. Holy fuck. That's a cheery story, man. Yeah, you know, that's my <laughs> bread and butter. Happy little Mary. They call me little Mary sunshine. <laughs> hey, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, yeah, Peter, that's so fantastic. All right. Well, you get ready. We're going to get, I'm going to get that big. Are you right-handed or left-handed? Right-handed. All right, good. That big right lead. Nobody's getting past it. I can, cannot how wait. How tall are I'm you? Literally, huh? How tall are you? Uh, probably 6'3". Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Eddie, oh. Eddie, Derek, <laughs> screw you and your jujitsu. I get a punch. Yeah, then you well, Derek. When are you, now? When are you coming to the states, Derek? Um, I think we've locked down for the next few years. So um, Derek's in jail. Yeah, I'm in jail. Oh, wow. I'm in um, jail. That's all right. Point. Well, yeah, I got some. I got some good jujitsu teachers for you when you come to the oh, states. But also, I need a. I need a leg up because I think me v Derek is going to be the. 
I'll take well, you Ash gotta, Mountain. Yeah, you got to go to the great, the greatest non-Gracie, in my opinion, probably the greatest martial arts teacher in Southern California is Chris Howder. And Where's he? Was, he? He's in uh, Redondo Beach. He was, okay. I think, the probably the first Gracie black belt. But like me, he's also a black belt in Jeet Kune Do. He was a high-level boxer, boxing coach, you know, trained with Dan Inasanto, the, you know, the one who inherited Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do. And Chris Howder is the best. And, okay. uh, and, and, it, and he's a fighter. And so, uh, so, yeah, you may have to come up and go to the famous, uh, you know, Howder's Garage. Okay, Howder's Garage, Derek. Oh, yeah. Screw hey, you, man. Cool. Good tomorrow. Yeah. Good tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm literally Good going to call him right now. <laughs> yeah, he's getting fast tracked, Derek. Okay. You're gonna so, but I got, I got a few associates in Australia. So, I'll, I'll oh, really? Gonna, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Send me a little email that he got in Sydney because um, right now we're in lockdown. So I've been rolling on the beach. Yeah. Which is great because you end up with sand in your eyelids and in your ears and shit. Yeah. And so how long have you been training? Uh, just over a year now. Okay. Good. Yeah, good. Been doing, you know, I've been going six times a week and just loving it. Six times a week. Yeah. Love wow. it. Wow. Don't so get Derek's, hurt. Yeah. Don't Derek's get an hurt. addict. So shit at it, man. Yeah, you got to be careful though. You were getting older, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, especially yeah. Good point, mate. yeah. <laughs> to the body of a ferret. Hey, Peter, thank you so much. Oh no, thank you guys. It's a pleasure. We can stay. All in right. Touch. I hope I didn't bore your audience with too much international relations, but yeah. hell no, it's what they're begging for. Nah, you have you got to get George on because you got to get him to talk about uh, Kelly's wave puddle, as he calls it. Um, the Olympics. I mean, yeah, Greeno's the best. He's a living treasure that needs a forum. <laughs> okay, thank That's you. So are you, Peter okay. McGuire. All right. Good night, guys. Good night, sir. Good night. If you're into sports betting, Bet online is where you should go to win money today. Whether it's live bets, during games, or futures for who you think will win the championship, Bet Online has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. Chaz, do you throw your money away betting? I wish I could more easily. This is the problem: is I'm always looking for somewhere easy to throw my money away sports betting because I always think that I've got a sure lock on a game, and nothing feels better then knowing you have a Sherlock and throwing money down, right? I mean, yeah. how often do you sports bet? I, I jump on the, I jump on the surfing occasion. I always lose because I, I can't ignore long odds. I see long odds and, and, I, and I just see ding, ding, ding. But that's, the, I mean, the whole point of betting is long odds, right? Like who wants to ever go, like playing the book to me is the most insane part about gambling because in gambling, I got a gut feeling on something even from anything, right? I mean, most sports betting, but even let's bring it all the way back to blackjack is sitting and playing the book where you're at the table and you know, okay, I'm holding a 17, but ooh, I got a gut <laughs> that a four is coming up. And you know that everyone in the table hates you when you say, hit me, because you're not supposed to do that. But getting, isn't, I don't understand anyone hating on anyone taking the longest odds in any any time the blackjack example is perfect because you have these people playing a game that's designed for them to lose 
and yet they play this they play that thing where you you, you don't draw on you know 14 or above. no you play the book you, that's yeah, like, yeah. all you do is play the book and then the and, people and play, oh, serious and you see how many how mad do people get in front of you when somebody else would not play the book and i and i used to sit and go you guys are idiots and then quite often you, you know you pull out you, you know 10 you're four you're three you're two you're three whatever and get 21 if someone had been pulling all those shortcuts the only way it works is if you can car count i mean card count and or got a sweet gut feeling which is sports betting is Ooh, all about what feel like tell me what it oh. feels like tell me that gut I, I mean would you just have that tingle in your gut when you know, when you know, I mean, for example, I was in Italy not too long ago, knew full well Italy was going to take the uh, Euro Cup. I knew they were going to beat England. I just knew it. Uh, and if I had a nice app that I could have easily bet or a nice website that I knew I could have bet, I would have full on thrown down. It's just I never know where to go in this instance. Well, now you know. So visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before your next big game, head on over to Bet Online and start playing today. Bet Online, the online sports, best sports book experts, and it's betonline.ag. Very important. So wait, betonline.sportsag. No, no, betonline, B T O whatever, dot A-G. So it's Antigua. Dot, that's it. You don't even yeah, need a dot com. .ag. Come visit beautiful Antigua and Barbuda. I mean, who doesn't want to bet in Antigua? We love your women. Who doesn't? That's where (laughs) I want to throw all my money away. Welcome welcome to Antigua. Tattooed on your dear car. Making people's millions. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.